Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. The person I'm speaking to today, he is a national treasure. Uh, he is a production designer, an artist, a sculptor. He's worked on the Hobbit trilogy and pretty much every Taika Waititi film, but he's done a, a lot more. Uh, Ra Vinson, how are you doing, man? It's a very generous thing to say. I think I think of myself as a bit more of a, a relic, a national a relic. relic. But <laughs> one one that managed to uh, to to jump the nest, and you know, I'm waiting for the day when I can return. <laughs> yeah, because given the industry that you're in, it's a very frantic industry. But you seem to still be quite chill and mellow. Is there a particular reason how you're able to still have that ability? Magnesium, I think, meditation. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit of all of that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking a few supplements after you hit 45. Um, but, you know, this industry uh, supports those who take their time playing. A, you know, if you want to play the long game, you really have to take care of yourself. Mm. And it's such an engaging, exciting industry to work in that quite often you can kind of be overwhelmed uh, over enthusiastic and you can kind of burn yourself out really quickly in fact in the earlier years of my uh, working on working on films as an art director or as a fabricator uh, quite often I would work myself to collapse every day but I've learned over the years that actually you know some of your best contributions come from a rested mind and from kind of just living the living the life of a production designer or living in film and storytelling so that it just is part of your kind of everyday mahi and it's not something that's like a hose that you turn it on, turn it off, turn it on, turn it off. And, you know, if you treat it like a, um, as more of a part of your life, you can kind of find a balance within that. And that means encouraging your family and your friends and your sort of health regime and all of those things that are important to you, incorporating it into your work, into your workflow. So we're not, we don't leave work at 7 o'clock in the morning and come home at 6 p.m. We wake up kind of making a plan for the day and how the day is going to incorporate what your teenagers are up to that day and what your partner's doing and, you know, how you can be the most effective you can be at work but also involve the rest of your life in the process. Yeah, because how, anyway. yeah, how do you manage that? Because you must do insane hours and go over schedule all the time, I'm sure. So to try and manage everything correctly when like you could get up early and have you ever had to do all nighters or anything like that? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's part of the part of the game, the part of the job description in some ways. But what should never be part of the job description is is burnout and kind of working yourself until you're completely uh, tortured and hopeless. So. I I feel like, you know, we do do some extraordinary hours, but 
I will only ever stay around if they're worth it. You know, if we're doing something that is amazing and benefits the product, then absolutely, I'm 100% there. If we, uh, for whatever reason, and this does happen sometimes on some shows, we're there and nothing really beneficial is going on and it seems like my contribution is wasted being there. Right. And go and work from home. Or I'll take, I'll clock out and go and make myself more available to my kids or my partner. So it, it, even though it can be a kind of uh, a full on, you know, everyone loves this idea that the film industry is kind of hypermanic, but uh, it's not sustainable. And there's a, 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 a good example of that is at the moment in America, the IATC union are calling a strike for oh, this wow. very reason. So we're looking at, you know, there's 160,000 people in the, um, in that labor union and they are really generally getting together to emphasize the fact that it's not sustainable. You cannot work seven days a week, 14 hours a day and without a break. And I think maybe, you know, it's okay for somebody like me who's a production designer and I can kind of call my own hours if you like, but the people who work with me and the people who work behind the camera don't have a lot of say in that. But in the US, I guess they're protected by this labor union and it's the first time in 128 years that they've decided to call a strike. And this is sort of significant turning point for that burnout factor. Because mm. New Zealand operates quite differently, right? Because it's not unionized. That's right. Yeah. We have a guild which which gives uh, suggestions to international companies that come in. And we have kind of some guidelines as to uh, general um, pay base rates and and workable hours. Um, but really, we don't, the system in New Zealand's a little more organic than the US. Mm. The individual on a workforce in the, on a film generally uh, will kind of put in their own bid for their labor or their own, how much compensation they require to do a job. Uh, whereas, uh, the the unionized system here in the US has like base rates that everybody gets paid, so everyone's the same, and everyone works under the same rules, same hours, same rates, and that I think helps support the gargantuan population that is the US film industry. For New Zealand, it's kind of better for us to be a little bit more self sufficient and as individuals be able to negotiate our own deals a wee bit mm. because it, we're we're um multi I, I feel like as a as a nation new zealand's a multi-skilled uh group of technicians you know we each person who works in the film industry has two or three different uh strings to their bow which makes them 
a more interesting, more diversifiable uh, commodity. So then you can ask for what you need to do the job. And that's probably due to how small our population is, right? So you have to have a multi-skill set because otherwise you might have periods where that particular set of expertise won't be needed because of how small the industry is? That, that certainly was the case 20 years ago when we were um, working on Xena and uh, Lord of the Rings and yeah. you know those, those shows. That's when the population wasn't that huge and everybody who was a film technician had a, had a job. Nowadays, there is there are more people available and more skilled people have come up through the through the ranks over the last two decades, and and you and you notice that actually you know that um, skill and diversity wasn't hasn't always just been out of necessity. It's kind of innate, I think, in our DNA. Mm. And especially working uh, in the US for so long, I've discovered that actually, you know, not everybody's as adaptable as you might think. Do you think that's just conditioning? Or... Outside of New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and do you just think it's it's a cultural conditioning? You think of the of what is the for sure gargantuan, as you said, of of Hollywood. For sure. One of the, one of the um, other wonderful tools that uh, we've we've got over here, apart from the labour unions, are the um, is the way that the, the the smaller guilds are constructed. And you know, when you graduate film school in the US, you immediately go and uh, work in the specific area that you wanted to learn about right. um, for me being a production designer it would have been virtually impossible for me to get to the point where I am now without having had the diverse training and um, and access to different work that I had when I was in New Zealand so I feel like you know even though the system works really well for training brilliant technicians here it doesn't there is no uh, leeway for people to go outside of their kind of comfort zones and learn more stuff. You know, you can be an absolute wonderful professional at um, <clears throat> at architectural modelling, but if your passion, if your sideline passion is sign writing, it's not. It's never going to happen mm. unless you go out of your way and you join another. Labor Union, which is the Sign Writers Guild, the Scenic, uh, the Scenic Department, or you know, you depart from art directing and you go into uh, construction and so scenic backdrop painting. So is that? I mean, this is a bit of a segue, but is that part of the reason why you wanted to set up the studio in Wanaka to help encourage well, more of that diversity within the New Zealand filming industry? Wanaka's really uh, a unique opportunity to create a big enough hub where we can uh, have access to more of New Zealand, not only scenic beauty, but 
also a, a sector of the community that doesn't necessarily have access to that kind of training or that experience. Mm. So we've placed ourselves in the most idyllic part of the country and also by opening up uh, film school opportunities and um, apprenticeships through the facility, which is Silverlight, we are encouraging people from other walks of life to join and participate in this. Um, it's quite a diverse medium, filmmaking. You know, film now has got all of these other tools that go with it, uh, new media and um, and the internet and gaming and virtual reality and kind of all of those uh, storytelling devices that aren't necessarily just making movies. So what we want, what we're trying to do is encourage, you know, more of an immersive creative hub that can support giant films or small local uh, projects or international um, virtual production. So it doesn't really matter where in the world we set ourselves up. And in fact, somewhere beautiful, idyllic, remote part of New Zealand is kind of perfect because it becomes in itself a destination and it also looks after a group of a, a big sector of the country that kind of doesn't get much of a look in really unless you're into yeah. farming or tourism there's not a lot of not a lot else going on but yet that's kind of what's shown internationally when people think of lord of the rings and the hobbit for example and they think of the scenery a lot of it is the the south island right a lot of that lush, yeah. beautiful landscape. We're in a super unique, we've got a super unique piece of countryside, which, you know, doesn't exist anywhere else in the world without uh, without some access to some facility. So by bringing, bringing a film park to um, Wanaka, we're allowing uh, the utilities to have easier access to that. So yeah. when you when you work, sorry when you when you worked on Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, um, I mean there must have been a, a major difference between the two points and when you worked on it. Obviously, one was you were as a sculptor and the other as a set designer. But was there a massive change in terms of uh, the production in in terms of the technology that was used, but in terms of how it was filmed, getting stuff in and out of location as well. We went through, I think, a phase, um, particularly on The Hobbit, where uh, we're quite reluctant to really shoot too many locations. I mean, we went out and sent, we had multiple units filming all around the country, but there was always this gravitational pull back to a blue screen environment and shooting in the comfort of a studio. What was that? Because logistically now with the, with the availability of the tech, this really amazing visual effects technology, it's cheaper basically. Right. right. It's e easier for, um, for cast when they don't have to be shuttled from one end of the country to the other in a helicopter. 
you know, it is a lot of fun, but it's super tiring and super expensive on a show like The Hobbit to travel from one end of the country to the other with all associated tracks and camera gear and then mm. people who need to be accommodated. So, you know, having uh, a little bit of a home base in the middle of the country is actually not a bad idea. What I'm finding now is that since we've gone through that um, visual effects teething phase, I guess, you know, where we thought that we could do everything from our laptops, there's a, um, a real effort to try and get back to um, a little bit more of a realistic background or location-based filming. And um, and the other piece of new technology that goes in hand, hand in hand with that is this um, LED immersive environment uh, uh, is that LED the, um, immersive lighting environment is that the technology that's being used on the Mandalorian yeah so yeah. Mandalorian used it um, Thor Love and Thunder is using some version of it we just came off an HBO show that's built a, a huge LED volume and um, the idea is you can as much as you'd like to go out to these really difficult locations, you can actually build an environment and shoot it still in the comfort of your studio and have everything react as it does traditionally through a traditional camera format. We've got a live background, which the talent can see, the camera can see it, and um, it feels like kind of filming was in the old days a little. So, you know, is it, there's a kind of a bit of an ebb and flow when it comes to uh, new technology. Yeah. So with with obviously this new technology, what advantages uh, would there be then to shooting on location when you still have the ease of access in terms of you know being able to put footage on the back of the back of the screen that can look relatively realistic. The I think the the advantages of Filming on location still are for the traditionalists. And also, if you need to go and do anything super wide or you want to do a car chase in the snow, things that you can't kind of perform on a on a 90-foot wide uh, cylinder of LED screens. Right. I see. Okay. Mm. That makes sense. So really, it's, it's supposed to just be a... Um, uh, an assisting tool. So if you have a, a shoot that's based in Queenstown, for instance, and you're using the lake and you're walking along the edge of the lake, maybe it's sunny on day one, day two it's snowing and the clouds have set in and you're carrying on the same scene on day two, you might want to think about taking that into a into a um, weather cover zone, which is an LED background, which you shot plates from from the day before, and you just carry on the scene in the comfort of your studio. Or, I mean, the other thing that the, that these LED environments can give us are um, real-time visual effects 
backdrops, like good science fiction backdrops. You know, mm-hmm. you could be, your spaceship could be parked by the lake, for instance, and you, and it's there in the LED volume. So there's, uh, with that type of um, new technology, it's opened up a whole lot of opportunities for graphics. Um, VFX artists to build environments and be part of kind of traditional filmmaking processes where they're building the sets basically. So, so where, where does that put you in terms of production and set design? Because would you be crafting less sets if you're just using these this LED light system? Um, I guess if I was swinging a hammer, I'd be building... Uh, a little bit less but really this augmented backgrounds are supposed to just support what you're already building so this is a like should be treated as an additional kind of piece of icing on the cake rather than depending on the technology 100% because I think that's where the the audience's brain switches off when they know that somebody's taking the piss. So we're, so we are actually being fooled into believing what's going on in the background. <laughs> but if you can give them a set to believe in or give the cast a set to believe in, at least you're going to get a performance, which is extraordinary. And then the distant background can be some epic, amazing, you know, yeah, yeah. diorama of the universe. And that's been crafted by a whole other group of people. So could this make effectively, well, effectively make green screen and blue screen obsolete? Like I think of when you when you built the set for Merkwood, it would have been a massive set and I imagine there'd be just green screen just at right at the back just to enhance it. Yeah. So would that effectively be replaced by this new augmented, augmented LED backdrop system? Um, there's really not a lot of reason why you would want to uh, why you'd want to do blue screen or green screen traditional stages anymore. There, it becomes valuable because um, though in certain situations because it's actually just a it's like a rolled up sheet. And you can put it up wherever you need to and then think about what happens to it later on. So if you're in the middle, if you're in the midst of something really great and you've got your cast doing their thing and you suddenly decide that maybe they should be on the moon, but we didn't have that idea when we first started thinking about making this movie. We had them in their living room. So... Part of a director's toolkit is like we put, we'll just put a green screen here, and then later in post production, we'll have them standing on the moon. Mm. So you know that's still it's still a really useful tool. What you have to do with LED environments is you have to have that plan in place way before you call any of the cast. So we would be thinking, right, so we're going to build a moon, <laughs> build a moon in, in advance. 
and then you know have the moon loaded in as a background and just in case we might have built a living room as well so on the day if we want to switch from a moon to a living room it's just a matter of loading up a new scene right but all of that needs to, some really sturdy planning and hollywood and all of the people involved in hollywood have very small um like like short they're quite they need some long focal uh foresight and it's not really a thing that happens here so you know someone gives you a pile of cash you go run off and spend it as fast as you can but um I think it's changing the attitudes to a lot of prep time for, for filmmakers as well, this type of technology, because you would kind of want to try and build your world six months in advance of kind of assembling everybody. Hmm. Makes sense. but um, It makes sense. But given you've worked with Taika Waititi and Peter Jackson uh, in the Hollywood system, because they come from New Zealand and the, the process is a bit different, uh, do they approach it differently in terms of how they, how, what they're looking at with money and, and all that, or they're directing? Or is it, or have they kind of been um, basically uh, taken over by the, the overlords that is Hollywood? Hmm. Well, that, I mean, whatever country you're working in, you do take a little bit of time to get to know the process in the country that you're in. So, you know, for instance, Czech Republic have a, have a system that's quite similar to New Zealand. Uh, England have a system that it's like a hybrid American-New Zealand kind of approach to filmmaking. And then America's just got its own idea of what how to make a movie, and that's kind of, that's how you do it. So little disruptors like so Peter Jackson, Taika Waititi, um, can sometimes kind of uh, feel like they're being abrasive or coming up against some sort of a feeling of indifference occasionally, I think, in a in a country that is like rock solid, this is the only way that you can make movies. You know, it's quite hard, I think, for um, New Zealanders to to acclimate to being told exactly what to do and how to do it. <laughs> and that goes for crews as well. I mean, there's a lot of expats here who work, but they uh, they always talk about the day when they get to work back home. Uh. Because was there much of it? You would have worked with the same crew on The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, would you not? Uh, not not necessarily, but I um, had a, a wonderful collaboration with Dan Henner, who's the production designer yeah, on The Hobbit and the supervising art director on The Lord of the Rings. So um, kind of learning, learning a lot of the skills that I now employ now through those two uh, shows, there's there's more than one way to make a movie, you know. And we've together, Dan and I, have done 
those two pitches set in Middle Earth. But the second time we did it, it was it was a di- quite a different experience from the first time. Even though the subject matter is the same, the aesthetic is similar, the technology is a little different. But I think you kind of um, you you adjust according to the uh, to the new information that you have, the new skills that you've picked up, and you can kind of carve out a different shaped art department. Uh, every every time you go into a new film, yeah. So you know, even though we sort of had some similar crews working on both of those epic adventures, they were kind of quite different. Is that also partly because Lord of the Rings had a massive pre-production cycle? I think it was years, and whereas The Hobbit, it went through so much drama before it even got to the stage of filming um, that. Because I think I saw that at one point you guys were like literally building it the day before you sh- shot in some cases. <laughs> yeah. Lord of the Rings was the same. It <laughs> was, wasn't, wasn't okay. a lot of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. Um, one thing we did work out though over the 20 years of doing those two shows is that um, you can keep you can keep being creative right up until the 11th hour. And <laughs> even then, it's still, it doesn't, stop people kind of having some kind of contribution until the camera turns over. When that happens, everything that you've worked up to has to just slow down and concentrate on that frame. Mm. You know, quite often at the last minute, the best ideas come and you have to allow yourself a little bit of, uh, a little bit of leeway to accept that magic. And yeah. that's something occasionally Hollywood um, isn't prepared for. Well, I, I suppose also because you're dealing with so many different creative people and creatives obviously love to contribute and create. So how do you, how do you manage all of that, right? Ensuring that... I do. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is a whole lot of creatives and they all have creative kind of um, te- temperaments as well because you know you're pouring your kind of your you're putting your art out there basically that's right so the only way to successfully run an art department in the film industry is to run it a little bit military style I mean we all like to think that we have a little contribution but at the end of the day, there needs to be a hierarchy and the hierarchy is built so that at the, at the top of the heap, at the top of the heap, it used to be there was a director and the director had a kind of overall vision and the ultimate kind of say on what was right and what was not. That sort of seems to be kind of uh, losing some traction at the moment the more studios focus on saving money and making money, the more the onus is sort of being pushed towards the producing team who who develop and, and create the content. But for me personally, I've, um, I still work for the director and the director's vision. And, you know, until 
somebody tells me that the accountant has got a better idea, then that's the way it'll stay. Right. I'm trying to imagine you doing the whole militant thing with with creators <laughs> because you seem like such a nice, grounded guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only way you're going to get good work is to encourage it out of people. And so really the the my greatest toolkit that I've got, I think, is uh, an ability to um, just listen to people and mm. find out whether they have actually got a really good contribution. Because more often than not, it's actually the it's your crew who bring all the wonderful stuff. I mean, I don't lift tables. I don't go to wallpaper shops and go through endless hours of searching through color swatches. I have people who kind of, I like to encourage people to come and bring the ideas to the table. And then we talk about it. We talk about it as a group. And we find the kind of homogenized version that actually, you know, my job is just to steer all of those ideas all into one straight line. Do you think that's being lost in in the industry? Because it seems like negativity is is all around us and there's actually little encouragement, which I think a lot of creatives need because yeah, we're quite vulnerable. Yeah, I know I am. <laughs> it's so easy to get demoralized and kind of lose your, um, you, you lose your effectiveness in this business. Yeah. So, you, so anything that kind of uh, celebrates people's creative contribution has got to be looked after. It's the only way you can make something great is to have a whole bunch of great people <laughs> feeling great about themselves. Yeah. And then and then if, if for whatever reason you really have to be a uh, bit forceful with folks, it's because they're not doing their jobs properly. Right. They're not doing their very best that they could be doing. You know, And nine times out of ten, they will realise that as well after they've been told. So, you know, I'm not afraid to tell people that they're not performing to the best. And I think that also helps create uh, an environment of kind of trust and give people confidence. Mm. So what's it like working on a Taika Waititi set? I can imagine it must be very different to any other set. (laughs) (laughs) It's a joy to work with. Uh, with Tiger on on a show that he's really invested in, and which is all of them, yeah, um, of course, because because he um, really truly cares about the product that he's making. So for me, it's uh, um, it's always a satisfying uh, event because I know that my contribution is being well looked after as well. Yeah, well, he's and, got a lot of a respect for you. Otherwise, he wouldn't well, be hiring you, would he? So. <laughs> <laughs> I think he just finds it easier to talk to me because I can understand his um, accent. <laughs> <laughs> Surely that yeah, would no, be a big, uh, would it? People could understand uh, you. Um, New Zealand, uh, I mean, you know, I think you just, you can see like-minded people in in the in the workforce around you, and you kind of 
it doesn't happen all the time. So it's good to look after those people that you can contribute with mm. easily. And um, I'll always have a, a, a spot vacant in my itinerary to help tackle with a show because it's it's um, such a joy for me to work with somebody who understands kind of where I'm coming from. And I think in a lot in quite a few situations it goes the other way. So, you know, maybe we're not um, ideally suited to some projects together, maybe, but certainly uh, there is a shorthand there where we understand where each other's coming from enough to be able to pull off some really good movies. Which is all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so far, so good. So far, so good. So is when you did Thor Ragnarok, was that any different from, say, what we do in The Shadows and Jojo Rabbit? Because they've kind of got this formula down, the Marvel formula, right? It's almost like a, a, a train that just keeps going. Yeah. There's a little bit of... Uh, um, uh, misguided idea though I have to say um, Marvel are very clever in that they know when they've got a really good thing happening and they protect it and fortunately for Taika and for me they saw some amazing stuff that was coming out of off the script pages and some and some beautiful set design ideas and they looked after all of the good stuff. They're right. shrewd enough group to know when they've got a good thing going. And if it's not good, they'll, they'll cut it out. That Thor film, I challenge anyone to tell me differently, but it was unique. You know? oh, Every totally. Marvel film since has kind of tried to fit into that formula, given. But up until Thor Ragnarok came out, there hadn't been anything like it. And I think, you know, the Marvel executives noticed noticed that there was something special about this, um, about Taika's work in, in his way of telling Thor and kind of left him to it. Mm. So, you, you know, even though we think it's just the Marvel machine that spits out billion-dollar box office hits every time, it's actually... It's actually because they're kind of quite shrewd and they support the good ideas. Yeah, well, it's it's a brilliant film, and I'm 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 kind of surprised. Like they 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 went with it that they supported his vision a hundred percent. I mean, mm -hmm. some of the stuff is. I mean, but with films, right? You kind of never really know what's going to resonate with an audience and what isn't. You're kind of taking yeah. a gamble every single time. You kind of are, unless you're aligned with somebody who um, can read the temperature of the room, like who knows what is happening socially and politically at the moment, or who knows where to call the bullshit. So yeah. if the world's going down the funny path just because they're all, all being guided by social media or whatever. Uh, you know, there's an opportunity there. There's some comic gold just mining through kind of some of the some of the world's sort of more eccentric thinking. 
<laughs> is there a bit? I suppose there's a bit more eccentric thinking in LA compared to other places in in New Zealand, for example, right? Yeah, everyone's yeah. on the make in LA. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're we're all out to kind of do something extraordinary, <laughs> or tell each other that we are. But is that kind of good in a way because you're constantly motivating each other because you're around that all the time? Yeah. Yeah, it gets a little tiring for a Kiwi. Yeah. But I think it's still good. You know, this is the best town to make movies. Do you think you'll ever get into directing? I mean, you've pretty much done everything, almost. Um, I'm quite keen to uh, help some other people get their shows off the ground. um, I've outgrown my production design if it's a little bit, I feel like I kind of can contribute more to storytelling. I don't feel like I'm quite ready to tell my own stories yet, but I'm certainly uh, feel like I'm getting really good at helping other people do it. And um, production design was really just one was like the the moving picture part of the equation to look after that. What does it look like? I feel like I can kind of uh, help guide or help frame a story as well. So maybe there's an opportunity there for um, to Mm. support or or be the the kind producer. The kind (laughs) producer. I like that. I like that slogan. Well, you're pretty much a mentor already, I suppose, in the fact that if you're managing a team and creatives and you mentioned encouraging them, that's already an aspect of mentorship. Right. Yeah. Right. And I guess the next step, you know, I mean, you're looking after budgets and crazy stuff like that, but you also want to be able to, um, you also want to be able to build a, uh, a team that can shoot a film. So, and that's everybody. That's all the, um, the camera department and the cast and the people who who have to bring the essential services like food and trailers, yeah, locations. I mean, there's so much behind the scenes that I think a lot of people don't know. I remember watching, I think, some of the, the Hobbit behind the scenes and all this stuff that you just don't take into account, like when you're out on location and someone needs to bring a port and all these tents and all the food up somehow, you know. Um mm-hmm. It's crazy stuff. Did you did you help build the Hobbiton set when it was being mm-hmm. redeveloped? Yeah, because you built it out I of did. Uh, permanent material, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We decided that actually it needed a life beyond just this six week shoot period or whatever. So we um, built it out of out of consentable materials. Right. So w- were you one of the ones that advocated for that, or was that something? Um, that- was just mentioned and you and you I was, you had to make it happen. I was a decorator, set decorator then so my um, part of my job was to assign textures and cut and colours and then set dressing to things. So I was part of the conversation <clears throat> but I was also celebrating that conversation because I wanted my work to kind of have a life beyond the film anyway. Fair enough. And um, now I uh, am a regular contributor to Hobbiton um, Tourist Park 
just through Secret Shopper or as a um, to replenish set dressing or to offer advice on upkeep because now we've got an amazing team of locals who look after the park. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. I think I went two years ago and it was amazing. So it was a very good job that was that was done. Um, well, the, and the thing is it's kind of it's an organic uh, organism that kind of keeps changing. So, you know, the staff that work there are constantly doing maintenance and kind of treating it like a living town. So things kind of dissolve back into the earth and you have to build new things, you have to upkeep the gardens. The story, the narrative that runs through the um, through the Shire has to be looked after. Like, you know, maybe the fisherman moves out of his house, moves two blocks down because um, because we've redirected the pond water or whatever. So, you know, there's a the there has to be a consistency or it has to be a consistent conversation about the narrative there to keep it believable for the audience. Mm-hmm. Do you still get a lot of time to do um, sculpt, sculpture work? Or are you more managing people these um, days? <clears throat> yeah, not a lot of time. Although just recently I have been dabbling. <laughs> I, I would like to um, carve out a bit of time for my carving, so to speak. But maybe that's a little way off just yet. So when you're carving a piece, what's what's the part of it that takes the longest? The formulation of an idea, I think, and then the execution of it is quite quick. The finishing is the other long part and kind of knowing when is a good time to stop. So... And I feel like that with um, designing a film. Mm. It's kind of similar. So you have to let it sit with you for a while so that you don't rush into the most basic answer. Give it a little bit of time to, to kind of percolate. And then the actual doing of the film only takes, like, typically an eight-week prep. And for for an eight or nine week shoot, and then after that, it's all over. You actually, once you start shooting, you kind of kind of can't be dreamy anymore. <laughs> once the camera turns over, that's it. You you locked into that thing that you did. So if you jump off the starting block straight away and you have this fixed idea and you leap straight into it, it you know you got to be kind of you, you either have to accept it <clears throat> or. You have to give yourself a little bit of time to kind of let it generate its own uh, life force before you build it. So when you're given a task and someone says to you, hey, are you able to sculpt this? Have you ever given them uh, a timeline and then be like, crap, why did I give them that timeline? Yeah, every time. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I do something. (laughs) Usually I give them the timeline and then I forget about the job and then someone reminds me a couple of days out and I'm like, damn it. <laughs> then you cram it. Because <laughs> I heard that or I read somewhere that you made that that massive Gandalf sculptor, uh, sculpture mm-hmm. within 
two weeks. Mm-hmm. Was it two weeks? Yeah. Me and my carving buddy, uh, Sam Janet, built that over, it wasn't even two weeks, it was less than that. We did the painting and everything took a bit longer. But the carving of this guy who was like 47 feet tall. Um, yeah, was that was really quick. Yeah, it was a quick job. I mean, and that was because behind the scenes, there's conversations about money and how much it's going to cost and can we make it less money and how we're going to put it up and things like that. And then by the time that conversation was finished, it's time to, oh, shit, let's build it. <laughs> so <laughs> That's how you make a movie as well. Really? Okay. So, mm-hmm. no, so yeah. people oh, shit, right. <laughs> people don't necessarily come to you and be like, so Ra, um, how long do you think this will take? And then you give them a timeline and they're like, okay. Or is there more of a, a more detailed discussion? That, or is it just, bang, this happens. is what it is? Yeah. Well, I mean with uh, filmmaking sometimes you just have to back into a number they give you get given a timeline and a budget and by the time it's approved you know you, your time might have contracted to such a point that you just have actually have to make anything <laughs> that fits into that <clears throat> and quite often that takes uh, you know a whole bunch more people and uh, a whole lot more management to kind of make it, squeeze it into a shorter time frame. But that's part of the fun of it too. Yeah, yeah. So how have you avoided not getting overwhelmed when you're managing these massive budgets? Because it's it's a lot of pressure. Well, the key is really, you know, we're not here, we're not curing cancer. We're not trying to save the world. We're here to entertain people. Yeah. And, you know, if you can't feel like you're enjoying the process, then it's not going to translate that well onto screen. Because hmm. I've heard that exploring is, is one of the things you love most, right, in terms of the job that you do. Explore, and when, when we talk about exploring, are you meaning like exploring locations, exploring how you're going to build it? Exploring yeah. how do you so the exploration? The money? The, well, all of that because the the accounting is just can be just as creative as the actual thinking of it. You know, anyone can come up with an amazing idea for an, an extravagant thing. Whether or not they can actually achieve that extravagant thing has a lot to do with good planning and knowing where you, where your money is best applied. So. You know, we could have the most incredible designers in the world contribute to a film, but if we can't afford anything they've asked for, then there's, there's very little point in hiring them. Do a lot of these um, big people in suit and tie not understand the fundamentals of actually what's involved in this stuff in terms of how much it's going to cost? That's an interesting question too. I mean, they do. They do. They understand. But they're always cheeky and they will always try and see if you can catch them out. So, (laughs) you know, it's my job to just um, call bullshit when it needs to be called and 
you know, give people opportunity to be uh, honest. <laughs> so have you, I suppose this has been a bit of a nightmare during this whole pandemic in, in terms of lockdowns and everything being all over the place in terms of different countries doing things differently. Because I suppose you've been here, there and everywhere in regards to um, New Zealand. Did you do some stuff in Australia and before you announced? Yeah, we, we went to uh, Australia. Um, my partner, Nancy, is a hair and makeup designer and she worked on a, on a project over there. And I went to a company here and while I was there, I got dragged into uh, Thor, Love and Thunder. And um, we had left New Zealand in April and uh, we'd come over to the to the US to work on an HBO show. Cool. And we've kind of been trying to get home since June. And uh, unfortunately, even if you have like a, a few television shows and maybe a movie that are quite keen to come and shoot in New Zealand, there's still no easy answer to get us back. Just the other night, though, me and my family scored a spot in managed isolation, so we're pretty excited. We'll be back soon. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a feat in and of itself, right? Because they got this new lottery system, I think, now, which is Yeah, and it's, it's, frightened, it's been frightening the way it works. Yeah, I bet. So, um, yeah, I, I feel comfortable in coming home because I know that I can just leave again. I just might not be able to come back, that's all. But anyone who has a product that they want to bring to New Zealand is having second thoughts about it because it actually is quite difficult to manage this um, managed isolation. Well, it'll be good to it'll be good that you get back, I suppose, and you can take a bit of a break. Or will you have work lined up when you get back? I'm coming back because there are a couple of projects that I'd like to get started down there. And part of the reason for me being there is to go and talk to the locations people and pitch some really great ideas to some people back in LA. And uh, if we don't sort out this MIQ problem, none of those shows will be coming here. So if it doesn't work when I get home, I might have a little break and then go to a different country and find some beautiful locations and we'll just take the shows there. You must know people in government. Can't you talk to them about doing something? <laughs> yeah, but there's sort of... They, the system runs a little slow. It's like a film studio. Yeah. The kind of cogs at the top are the slowest of them all. By the time the information rattles through the cogs, you've got 10 days to finish the project. Mm. Crazy. <laughs> well, hey, um, I'll wrap up there. Thank you so much for taking the time and doing this. I know it's been a bit hectic, but um, appreciate everything that you've done. As I said, you are a national treasure. So um, I look forward to it's seeing very this. Sweet. I look forward to seeing this Silverlight Studio that's being built out in Wanaka. Because what is it take? Yeah, me take too. Five, five years. Uh, Zeki only going to take two years to get the um, to get the bulk of it up and usable. So really, you know, we're yeah, we're ta we're we're taking it in phases. That's quite short, I would think. 
it's super short, but we have um, on our side uh, fast track consenting mm. through through the um, economic development, and um, we actually would like to time it out with a few big productions that potentially are coming to New Zealand. So you know, the, in the short of it is let's sort out our MIQ problems so that projects like Silverlight and big ticket out-of-town films and even smaller budget shows can survive in a safe but workable um, community in New Zealand. Will that kind of help to take a bit of the pressure off uh, the studios in Wellington and Auckland as well? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there is there is so much appetite for um, space, and New Zealand's full of brilliant technicians. So there's no reason why we can't fill all of them. Yeah, mm. makes sense. Makes sense. And pretty much, Weta has been doing Avatar for who knows how long now, which has been taking up all mm. the time. So, not much studio space, I'm sure. Yeah, some films take longer to make than others. Yes, yes. But a delayed... For, for many reasons. Have, yeah, well, I mean, with Avatar, I mean, it's the highest grossing film ever. So they can take mm-hmm. their time, I'm sure. The The studio will want to reap as much money as they can. And they will. <laughs> they will, yeah. All right, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time out and doing this. Um, I need Absolutely. to... Absolutely... Absolutely, my pleasure. Yeah, if I ever meet up with you, I'll, I'll I need to buy you dinner or something. Good on you, buddy. I'll be back <laughs> one day. Yeah, one day. Hopefully soon. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And uh, until next time, stay safe. See you later.